welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. Psalm 139, verse 14, Christian Standard Bible. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. That's C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-S-E-A-B-O-O-K-S dot com. Thank you for joining us here today on Anchored by Truth as we continue the series which we are calling Eternal Information. Like several of our other series that we've done on Anchored by Truth, this Eternal Information points out a fundamental truth about the universe we see around us. Everywhere we look, the universe exhibits order and design. This is true for the inanimate features of the universe, and even more true for living creatures. Today we are going to focus on the undeniable elements of a design present in living creatures. In the studio today we have R.D. Fierro, who is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. When we look at the composition of living creatures, it's hard to avoid noticing an amazing level of complexity, isn't it? Yes, it is. But before I get too far into answering the question, I would also like to thank everyone who is joining us here today. We do these series because we want people to be able to understand that there is a solid and reliable intellectual foundation for their Christian faith, as well as a faith that appeals to their heart. Anyone who has ever contemplated the properties of a living cell for even a moment has to recognize that human beings, and we're supposedly intelligent, still do not have the ability to create structures or systems that have that level of design finesse. The most elegant examples of human technology pale in comparison to the complexity that is present in every single living cell on the planet. Yet the most amazing thing is that some people, despite the fact that they can perceive that complexity, that sophistication, that elegant design, that some people look at all that and they think, oh, well, all that just arose by chance. Well, today we're going to start more of an in-depth look at the most amazing storage medium on the planet, DNA, and what it took to create something that is that amazing. And again, the reason we're doing this is because we want people to have facts that will directly counter the narrative that is so pervasive in our society. We want to counter the narrative, the assertion that somehow random chance could have produced living creatures. Well, just as a brief review to set the stage, we've already learned several critical things about information as a fundamental component of the created order. Information stands alongside matter, energy, time, and space as a fundamental component that is evident when we make empirical observations about the universe. The difference between information and those other components is that information is non-material. Speaking technically, information is massless. Information is not created by and does not interact with matter, energy, time, or space. 
We can use matter and energy to transmit, receive, or store information, but neither matter nor energy create information. A chemical formula for apple pie or rocket fuel can be written on the same piece of paper using the same ink. The paper and the ink do not create the formula, tell us what the formula is, or affect the formula in the slightest. Thus, information differs from other massless parts of the universe, like photons, which are also massless. But photons can be created by matter and energy and do interact with them. And, as we've seen during this series, that information always contains specified sequences, elements, codes, and symbols, and that those sequences and elements, codes, and symbols are all arranged or encoded for a very specific purpose, and they're designed to produce specific effects. So, in addition to information being non-material, another overarching concept that leaps out at us about information is that information is ordered, organized, and specified. Well, all the definitions that we found when we looked at definitions for information reflected these fundamental attributes. So in studying these attributes of information, one information scientist, Dr. Werner Gitt, has formulated four laws that describe how information behaves within the universe. The first law is, a material entity cannot generate a non-material entity. The second law is that universal information is a non-material fundamental entity. The third law of information is that Universal information cannot be created by statistical processes. Universal information is simply a way of saying that real information possesses the attributes of order, structure, meaning, and potential action that can produce results. This helps us distinguish information from the kind of nonsense that would be produced by a cat walking on a keyboard. The cat might produce some characters on a computer screen that resemble information, but the letters on the screen won't have order, purpose, or enable meaningful action to take place. Exactly right. These first three laws then lead to a fourth law, and that fourth law is going to be particularly relevant to our discussion today, and in fact relevant to our discussion over our next couple of episodes on Anchored by Truth. The fourth law is that universal information can only be produced by an intelligent sender. Anything that has order, specificity, and purpose must reflect intelligence. Order, specificity, and purpose are opposite of things being random or chaotic. So anything that has order, specificity, and purpose must reflect intelligence. Now, there are a lot of predictable patterns in nature. Crystal lattices, for instance, it's a very regular and systematic pattern. Or if you throw a rock into a pond and the ripples spread out across the pond, That also is a regular and repeating pattern. But crystal lattices or ripples spreading up across a pond, those patterns don't convey any meaning or purpose. Now, they may be beautiful. We may enjoy looking at them, and they certainly may attract us and appeal to us, but they don't tell anyone how much sugar to put in the pie or where the buried treasure is located. So those patterns that we find in nature, they may be beautiful and appealing, but they don't convey information. So, this distinction immediately leads us to our topic for today. Many people believe that chemistry and physics can explain everything that we need to know about living creatures, about how living creatures function, but they can't. 
As Dr. Jonathan Sarfati reminded us when he was a guest on Anchored by Truth, the information stored in DNA cannot be explained by the chemical components of DNA any more than the chemical components of paper and ink can explain what appears on a printed page. Paper and ink have chemical elements that form them, but it requires intelligence to use that paper and ink to store or transmit information. Yes. I sometimes ask people a sort of trick question. The trick question is this. Is biology the product of just chemistry and physics? Well, the answer, if you think about it, is very clearly no. I mean, if chemistry and physics could produce biology, we could just load some carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, a few other things into a vat and provide an energy source like electricity or heat, and poof, out would come some cells. Or at least out would come some organic compounds. But we can load those chemicals, we can load those elements into a vat, and, well, nothing comes out. We can't just load carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen into a vat, provide an energy source, and poof, get living cells or even organic compounds. But some people would say we've already done that. Some people are under the impression that scientists have created life from non-living chemicals in laboratories. Yes, many people are under the misimpression that the famous experiments that were conducted by Stanley Miller and Harold Urey at the University of Chicago, which started in 1953, many people are under the misimpressions that Miller and Urey produced life. They didn't. Now, some of the more accurate reporting during that period noted that while the Miller-Urey experiments didn't produce life, they did produce organic material. Well, even this was a considerable overstatement of what Miller and Urey actually produced. Now, the Miller-Urey experiments, just to give a brief background, involved filling a sealed glass apparatus with the gases that some scientists had speculated were necessary to form life and that were part of the primeval Earth's atmosphere, the so-called primeval Earth's atmosphere. And so the gases they put in were methane, ammonia, and hydrogen. Again, they thought that these gases might be similar to the conditions that were present in the early Earth's atmosphere. They also included, by the way, water vapor because they thought that would simulate the presence of the ocean. Next, while those gases are in their glass apparatus, they heated it using a heating coil and they kept the water boiling. Well, then they started striking the gases in the flask with a high voltage, a 60,000 volt tungsten spark discharge device, which they thought simulated lightning. And below the gas mixture that the lightning was going through, there was a water-cooled condenser that cooled and condensed the mixture, and therefore it allowed whatever came out to fall into a water trap that was positioned below. Well, what did they get out of their experiment? And why is it so widely regarded as an evolutionary breakthrough? Well, within a few days, the water in the gas mixture produced kind of a pink stain on the sides of the flask trap. And as the experiment progressed and the chemical products started to accumulate, the stain turned deep red and then sort of muddy. After a week, the researchers collected the substances in the water trap and they tested what was actually there. Well, the dominant solid material that they found was an insoluble, toxic, carcinogenic mixture that probably is best referred to as a tar or a resin. And of course, tar or resin, that's a common product that results from organic reactions, such as burning tobacco. Well, the tar was analyzed, and what Miller and Urey was looking for was the presence of amino acids. 
Why were they looking for amino acids? Because the basic structure of all life on Earth, whether it's a plant or an animal, is a cell. Now, some creatures like bacteria are only a single cell. Human beings contain over 35 trillion cells. But regardless of the number, all life on Earth is cellular-based. Cells are composed of permeable membranes that encase the components of the cell, and the components within the cell are actually what you might think of as carrying on the business of life. Well, those components that are lodged within the cell membrane include proteins, and you can think of those proteins as kind of like being micro-machines, and some other things like nucleic acids. And of course, the most famous nucleic acid is deoxyribonucleic acid, or what we refer to as DNA. Well, the proteins that are within the cell and that make life possible are all built from amino acids. Amino acids are small organic compounds consisting of about 10 to 20 atoms. And there are hundreds of known amino acids, but only 20 of those known amino acids are used by living creatures. So, did they find any amino acids? Well, they didn't find any amino acids on their first attempt, so they modified the experiment and tried again. Well, in time, they were able to find some trace amounts of the simplest biologically useful amino acids, mostly glycine and alanine. But the yields of those amino acids were extremely small. Even Miller admitted at the time, quote, the total yield was small for the energy expended, close quote. Well, after hundreds of replications and modifications using techniques similar to those that Miller and Urey used, Scientists have only been able to produce tiny amounts of less than half of the 20 amino acids that are required for life. The other amino acids require much more complex synthesis conditions. Well, without all 20 amino acids available, most of the known protein types cannot be produced. That would seem to be a big problem. But there were other very significant problems, weren't there? Yes. There was a huge problem with the material that was produced. Chemists divide amino acids into levorotary and dextrorotary. The amino acids of all living forms are levorotary, or sometimes said levorotary, which simply means they are left-handed molecules. As organic chemist A.E. Wilder-Smith has noted, quote, if even very small amounts of the dextrorotary type are present, Proteins of a different three-dimensional structure are formed, which are unsuitable for life's metabolism, close quote. In other words, the presence of right-handed amino acids can be lethal. So did the Urey-Miller experiments ever produce left-handed amino acids? No, nor have any similar experiments since produced pure left-handed amino acids. They always produce a combination of the two kinds of amino acids, which chemists will call a race mate. Usually, the proportion produced in these kinds of experiments is about what you'd expect, about 50-50. So this points out one of the big failures of the Urey-Miller experiments to be helpful to the idea that living cells could have been produced randomly. Not only didn't the experiments produce anything that was, quote, alive, despite all the media hype that said they did, they did not even produce the kind of building blocks with which real cells are made. And Yuri himself acknowledged this problem. He was once asked how life could have formed spontaneously when living creatures require left-handed amino acids, but the lab experiments like his only produce mixtures. His reply was, quote, 
Well, I have worried about that a great deal, and it's a very important question, and I don't know the answer for it, unquote. Moreover, that's just the beginnings of the problems pointed out by their experiments. The Yuri Miller experiments used an atmosphere that was devoid of oxygen, what is commonly referred to as a reducing atmosphere. But the earliest known rocks, even according to the long-age conventional theories, all show signs of oxidation. Rust is one common form of oxidation with which we're all familiar. The presence of oxygen in the early Earth atmosphere would be a real problem because oxidation would break down any early organic compounds faster than they could be created. So many scientists today are trying to explain the origin of life by positing that it occurred near deep-sea ocean vents. Well, for life to form, water vapor, ammonia, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and methane have to be present to make the amino acids. But those amino acids aren't just kind of drifting around. They have to spontaneously combine into long chains called polypeptides. But polypeptide synthesis won't take place in the presence of excess water. Excess water would break down the polypeptides into their component amino acids. So the appeal that life somehow originated near deep ocean vents comes with a huge problem, and that problem is really unsolvable. The point about all this is that contrary to widespread public opinion, scientists have never created life in a test tube. Some surveys have found that as much as 75% of the general public believes that they have. Further, scientists have never even produced the kind of amino acids living creatures need simply by shooting an energy source through a mixture of chemical elements, even when they present for elements that form the proteins required by life. Scientists can produce left-handed amino acids, but only through very carefully designed synthesis protocols that aren't anything close to the processes found in nature. So, far from demonstrating that random forces could have generated the components of life, the Yuri Miller experiments actually demonstrated the extreme improbability of that happening. Right. The Yuri Miller experiments were a success, just not a success at showing how easily the components of living creatures can be produced by undirected natural processes. The Yuri Miller experiments were a success at demonstrating the extreme improbability of random processes producing the compounds needed by living creatures and the impossibility of those compounds then organizing themselves somehow mysteriously into proteins, nucleic acids, or cells. But even if the Yuri Miller experiments had produced some, most, or all of the necessary amino acids, that still would not have been very helpful to their original aim. Why not? Because presumably, in designing their experiments, Yuri Miller injected a considerable amount of intelligence. I mean, said differently, Yuri Miller applied a considerable amount of information when they designed and conducted their experiments. Now, remember that on the first trial, they didn't get anything that was useful for life. So they redesigned the experiment. I mean, that's a clear example of them acquiring and using information in an attempt to show that life could have arisen without intelligence or information. What you're saying is that even if a group of scientists went into a lab, put some chemicals into beakers, provided an energy source, captured any products formed, and then discovered the right kind of amino acids, none of this is random. The scientists are the ones picking the chemicals they put in the beaker, and they are using information to do that because they already know the answer. 
They already know what chemicals are present in living creatures, and they know the proportions the various elements represent. The scientists already know that all living creatures need a source of energy to sustain their activity and their life, and they have a pretty good idea of what kind of energy must be present. Too much energy, and living things get fried. Too little energy, and living creatures die of starvation or freeze to death. Living creatures live within very narrow limits of the type and amounts of energy they need to sustain themselves. But none of that information would be available to an organic soup drifting about in a primeval earth being struck by lightning or boiled by volcanic rifts. The absence of information would be fatal. If there was anything living that could die, which there wouldn't be. Information is the essential component for transforming inanimate chemical elements into living entities. Yes. Scientists studying living things and then determining the constituent parts of those living things and then attempting to induce similar things to organize into living things doesn't demonstrate that life could have arisen randomly. It does the exact opposite. Information and its application are present throughout that kind of a process. They were present throughout the process that Yuri Miller attempted. And as you just said, information is an essential component for transforming inanimate chemical elements into living entities. Now, an almighty, all-wise God could create the elements that he wanted to create, and he did that on day one. And then on day three, he took some of those elements and he organized them in such a way that the first living things emerged. You're referring to Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, which read, quote, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that will bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, unquote. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Unquote. That's from the New International Version. Yes, God can create atoms and molecules out of nothing, and he did, because God is infinite in power, wisdom, and sovereignty. God created the atoms and the molecules on the first day, and then he began organizing them into a creation that suited his purposes, including the creation of man on day six. Now, day three is when he turned those atoms and molecules into the first living cells, and with those first living cells, he built vegetation. Now, we're not told expressly when God created the plants that live beneath the seas, But it might have been on day three or even day two when the Bible tells us that he organized the waters into the seas and the sky. Christians are not left with a dilemma about how hundreds of billions of atoms could all come together at the right place at the right time to make the first living cell. But people who want to leave God out of the equation, who want to leave God out of the production of life, they are stuck with that dilemma. Well, This is a series about information, so let's do a quick check at some of the places information is present in what we know about the process for creating life. Atheists and radical secularists have to figure out how enough hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen arrived at one place and began forming just the right set of chemical bonds to turn those elements into amino acids. So the first application of information is what elements are going to comprise living creatures. 
And those aren't all of the elements that are contained in living creatures. The human body has 21 separate elements, some of them in very tiny amounts. Yet despite their relatively small presence, they are necessary for us to live. Yes, but it's not sufficient to just have those elements available. Those elements must combine in just the right way to create 20 different forms of amino acids because it's those amino acids that are going to be necessary to form the proteins. Well, the next place that information is present is in the chemical structure of the amino acids. And just having the 20 different amino acids, that doesn't make a cell or even a protein. Proteins are typically composed of between 100 to 500 acid, what you might call blocks, in a chain. But the proteins don't just exist as long strings dangling around everywhere. The protein string is called its primary structure. But then all proteins fold into complicated shapes, and that's called their tertiary structure. And it's in their tertiary structure that proteins will interact with one another to perform the functions that sustain life. So there's information displayed in how the amino acids are lined up into a particular protein. And then, of course, a bunch of free-floating proteins doesn't mean anything is living. Without a permeable cell membrane holding everything together, we just have a bunch of junk protein. And the cell wall has to be permeable because even though it encloses the cell's contents, energy-sustaining materials must come in and waste products must go out. So there's more information that describes the membrane's construction and information that prescribes what energy source is safe for use and what is toxic. And all that is just talking about a single-celled organism. We haven't even begun to talk about multi-celled creatures, much less mammals and man. There are a great many layers of information necessary to make life, even simple life, possible. Yep. And even if you can get past all those informational barriers, all you've done is get life going. Cells need instructions for how to operate. And of course, all that's contained in the DNA. And we're going to look at that more next time. And we're going to see that the DNA actually operates as a four-dimensional informational system all by itself. Now, we might have excused Charles Darwin for thinking that living cells are relatively simple constructs. But ever since the biomolecular revolution of the 1950s, that excuse has gone away. James Watson and Francis Crick first discovered the structure of DNA in 1953, almost seven decades ago. You know, it's just a little bit silly to believe that unintelligent and undirected matter and energy could produce life when even the most intelligent scientists that have lived among us has not been able to do it. This sounds like a great time to go to prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer of corporate confession because we all have fallen short of the standards that God has prescribed for the creatures made in His image. Prayer of Corporate Confession Father, perfect in justice, holy in all ways, we stand before you to declare that we know you are a great, powerful, and just God. Before time began marking the rise, decline, and coming renewal of creation, you established the laws to govern all seasons and creatures. Your laws are perfect because you are perfect. Lord, we acknowledge today 
that we have sinned and fallen short of your expectations. We know that we have done this of our own volition, that our transgressions are not caused by anything that you have done or failed to do. As you forgive us, help us to freely forgive those who offend us when they ask for pardon. Let us embrace our brothers and sisters with repentant hearts as readily as you embrace us. We can only do so by knowing the gracious love that you brought to us when Christ came and died for us. He tore apart the veil between your people and you, sent the Spirit to refresh our souls, and so it is in his precious name that we ask for mercy, pardon, and a readiness to serve you. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalseabooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L, C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S dot com. Thank you for your support.